This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. The USS North Carolina was saved from the scrapyard, one dime at a time. The year was 1958, and the once mighty warship, with a decorated history of active service in World War II, and a majestic size and scale that had stopped sailors, citizens, and enemies in their tracks, was about to be torn apart for scrap metal. The ship had been floating in the Navy's Atlantic Fleet Reserve in Bayonne, New Jersey, since it was decommissioned 11 years earlier, after just six years of active service. The Navy needed to make room in the fleet, and it planned to do so by selling off its older vessels, piece by piece. But such a fate didn't sit well with the citizens of the state etched on the side of the warship. So a statewide campaign, led by World War II veteran James Craig and celebrated photographer Hugh Morton, was mounted to save our ship, as it was called. With donations from residents and dimes dropped into milk jugs by more than 700,000 schoolchildren, the plan was to purchase the North Carolina from the Navy, drag it to Wilmington, and turn it into a floating museum and monument to the state's residents who fought and died in the Second World War. The rallying cry, homegrown by Craig right here in Wilmington, sparked a groundswell of support that managed to salvage the piece of history, now one of the most popular tourist destinations in the state. But the warship's history, and even its lineage, dates back more than 200 years culminating in the ship's entrance into the greatest conflict of the 20th century. In its forever home in Wilmington today, which Craig would tragically never get to see, the ship stands as a testament to its service and strife in a time of war, when it valiantly sailed the name North Carolina to the front lines of a global struggle for supremacy. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week, we're flipping to a new chapter in our local history book to share the storied heritage of the showboat, the nickname given to the gallantry and promise of the battleship North Carolina. While you might think you know the history of the ship that today is part of the identity of Wilmington, there's more to the North Carolina and its path to the port city than meets the eye. As always, I'll share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend. 
and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So climb aboard this new episode of Kate Fear Unearthed as we explore the life, legends, and legacy of the battleship North Carolina. The Japanese military boasted that it sank the USS North Carolina six different times during World War II, a tactic that would seem to rely on wishful thinking and propaganda being as destructive as a torpedo. Despite those reports of her untimely demise, the battleship not only survived the war, but played a major role in every significant offensive naval engagement in the Pacific and would become a beacon of the might of the U.S. military for the men among its ranks and its enemies across the globe. But the North Carolina's tour of duty isn't just a 20th century tale. It inherited the name it proudly rode into war from a handful of vessels that came before it. The first USS North Carolina, which was launched in 1820, was a 74-gun 208-foot line of battleship that carried 820 officers and enlisted men. Unlike her much larger successor, the first North Carolina served nearly half a century and was, according to historian Captain Ben Blee, a prized vessel to gain command of at the time. During the Civil War, the Confederate Navy built their own North Carolina ironclad in Wilmington, but the smaller 165-foot ship was plagued with problems from the start. Salvaged from an old tugboat, she was primarily used to guard the mouth of the Cape Fear River to ensure that Confederate boats could pass the Union blockade. Unfortunately for the Confederacy, she sprung a leak in September 1864. And sank. The next North Carolina was an armored cruiser 12 that slipped into the water in 1908. A much longer ship at 504 feet and mightier with a displacement nearly seven times that of the 1820 vessel, she was used in World War I and made several trips to Europe. She's most notable as being the first ship to ever launch a plane while in motion. In 1916. Another USS North Carolina was commissioned just three years later, but she was never completed after the victors of World War I agreed to halt naval construction in order to avoid a global arms race. Had she been finished, it's reported that the ship and her sister vessels would have been the largest, most heavily armed capital ships in the world. A decade and a half later, the Navy was ready to move forward with plans for another USS North Carolina and a USS Washington in 1933. An act of Congress authorized their construction on June 3, 1936, making them the first battleships built by the U.S. in 16 years. The keel, or the center line of the ship's base, was laid on October 27, 1937. According to Captain Blee, who served on the USS North Carolina in World War II, 
Four years went into designing the ship, and another three and a half were spent building her. BB-55, as she was known during construction, was officially launched on June 13, 1940. And the show of power from the U.S. couldn't come soon enough. She was launched just one day before Hitler and his forces occupied Paris. At the launching ceremony, then-North Carolina Governor Clyde Hoey spoke to the crowd of 55,000 gathered at the New York Navy Yard, which had to be expanded in order to build the ship. His young daughter, Isabel, broke the ceremonial bottle of champagne on the bow, officially christening BB-55 as the USS North Carolina. As the band played, she slid into the East River and began a nearly seven-year career that would take her and her crew around the world and back. When all was said and done, the USS North Carolina was 728 feet and 9 inches long, had a speed of 28 knots, and would eventually be loaded with an armory of firepower, including nine 16-inch 45 caliber guns, 25-inch 38 caliber guns, and 60 40 millimeter guns. In other words, she wasn't lacking in the tools of engagement even if that wasn't her primary purpose. As Captain Blee notes in his book on the ship, quote, the North Carolina was designed in an era when battleships were the principal combatants of the world's great navies, and their role was to slug it out with big guns at ranges of up to 20 miles. Although the showboat was destined never to engage in such a slugging match, she was well equipped to hold her own, end quote. The ship had a war capacity of 128 officers and 2,195 enlisted men. Although she hit the water in 1940, the Navy didn't officially claim her as part of the fleet until April 9, 1941, when it touted the battleship as one of the most powerful in the world. Afterwards, she went through an exhaustive shakedown a process where the crew works out the kinks and prepares her for full active duty. The North Carolina hadn't yet completed its shakedown when Japan dealt the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. The North Carolina would arrive in Pearl Harbor the following July, a sight Captain Blee said drew the battered and bruised men from the bowels of the surviving ships to see her grand arrival. The cheers upon her arrival were infectious, spreading from ship to ship as the North Carolina sailed past the carnage of metal that still sat sunken and sideways in the harbor. The ship stayed in the harbor for less than a month before it set course for Guadalcanal, where it acted as a mighty escort for aircraft carriers sent to pry the Solomon Islands from the grip of the enemy. An early scrimmage saw the U.S. pay a steep price in the Battle of Savo Island, losing four cruisers without any Japanese losses. It further escalated into an all-out battle on August 24, 1942, the first time the USS North Carolina saw any action on the front line, an introduction to war often referred to 
as a baptism of fire. But the North Carolina stood her ground and downed seven planes while continuing to protect the aircraft carriers. The show of force by the U.S. fleet that day had turned back the Japanese reinforcements. But the skirmish wasn't without its sacrifices. George E. Conley became the ship's first man killed in action. Ultimately, the North Carolina had shown the strength the Navy had long touted. And because of that, the enemy recognized a new target to strike from the fleet. They took their most damaging shot on September 15, 1942, when the North Carolina, which had remained off Guadalcanal to help provide cover for supply ships, was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. Shortly before 3 p.m., the showboat's crew noticed smoke rising from the Wasp aircraft carrier. But no alarm was being sent from the ship. The North Carolina and its fellow cruisers watched silently as explosions and fire ripped through the vessel. Minutes later, a message finally came over the radio. The Wasp had been hit by three torpedoes from a Japanese submarine, and it was now taking aim at the rest of the fleet. Within minutes, a torpedo slammed into the North Carolina's port bow at 2.52 p.m., a direct hit that sent a thunderous shockwave through the ship. The collision shot a column of water so powerful into the air that when it fell down on the deck, it washed one man overboard to his death. The torpedo had ripped a massive hole 32 feet long in the side of the ship, into which a thousand gallons of water were now rushing in. Four more men in the washroom below deck had been killed instantly. Repairs began immediately, even as the North Carolina continued to move in order to avoid a second hit. The devastating attack on the Wasp saw it abandoned and ultimately torpedoed by friendly fire in order to keep it out of the hands of the enemy. The five casualties on board the North Carolina would prove to be the ship's deadliest day of the war. It arrived back in Pearl Harbor on September 30th for immediate repairs, which would be conducted in haste for more than a month. By December, she was back off to Guadalcanal, but would spend nearly a year playing backup, leaving her crew to learn the pains of waiting and the boredom of a stalemate. But on board the North Carolina, it would have been like a city floating on the back of the sea. The enlisted men had everything they would need to live for an extended period of time on the water, including barracks, a barber, break room, tailor, and even a movie projector for some downtime when the boat wasn't in a combat zone. A print shop made postcards and letters the men could send to their families, and also printed the ship's own newspaper, originally titled the Tar Heel, but eventually renamed the Showboat in 1946. Unfortunately, anyone who has toured the battleship in its current berth in Wilmington during the summer months knows the sweltering heat to which the lower decks can skyrocket. 
The same would have been felt by the men on board, as the boat never had air conditioning. During this period, the crew would have endured extended periods of inaction, interrupted unexpectedly by drills and false alarms. The North Carolina would be put back into active engagement when the U.S. began working to recover the Gilbert Islands from the Japanese in late 1943. She went on to serve in attacks on the Marshall Islands, played a role in an impressive three-month attack in the Central Pacific that sank 50 Japanese vessels, was part of the Battle of the Philippine Sea, and even survived a brutal typhoon in December 1944. At the Battle of Iwo Jima, the North Carolina was not far offshore from the landing beach, a position from which she repeatedly fired 16-inch rounds directly at the enemy's bunkers an unrelenting offensive assault known as shore bombardment. During the invasion of Okinawa, the ship was notably hit by a friendly fire projectile and lost three men, with another 44 wounded. The USS North Carolina would end her tour of service as she traveled toward Tokyo, where it assisted in the bombardment of the Hitachi Industrial Complex, on July 17, 1945. Then, it again waited to be called into action. A few months earlier, Germany had surrendered after the Battle of Berlin, during which Hitler committed suicide. But Japan continued the fight, and wouldn't officially surrender to the Allies until September 2, 1945. The Japanese had actually declared their intent to surrender two weeks earlier, erupting the rest of the world in celebration, while the men of the USS North Carolina continued to hold their post off Tokyo, in case it was all a ploy. When the surrender was officially signed on September 2nd, the announcement made on board the North Carolina wasn't met with cheers. Just sighs of relief. In total, the USS North Carolina had sailed more than 300,000 miles and earned 15 battle stars. During her service, she lost only 10 men and saw another 67 wounded. She arrived back stateside in Boston on September 17th to immense cheers, and the final leg of her service would prove to be swift. After she returned to her birthplace in the New York Navy Yard to be deactivated and disarmed, she was then decommissioned on June 27, 1947, and sent to New Jersey to be part of the reserve fleet, where she would wait until her namesake called her home. The Save Our Ship campaign began in 1958 with James Craig an advertising executive with the Wilmington television station WECT. He saw the Navy's announcement that the warship had become obsolete in the age of nuclear-powered carriers, and he couldn't bear the idea of it being destroyed. So he pitched the proposal to save it to his local American Legion Post 10, which set up a battleship committee of veterans to spearhead the campaign. He also convinced the state to launch its own committee, 
which would grow into the Battleship North Carolina Commission. The idea of salvaging a decommissioned warship for public use wasn't all that crazy. In fact, it had already been done. In 1947, the state of Texas acquired the USS Texas as a war memorial. But the USS North Carolina proposal faced a few stumbling blocks, namely the $250,000 price tag attached to buying the ship and then building it out into a war memorial. And then there was the sizable matter of where they were going to put it. The state's commission, led by Hugh Morton, who had been the first president of the North Carolina Azalea Festival in Wilmington, took charge of the campaign and initially narrowed down possible locations to Moorhead City, Southport, Swansboro, and Carolina Beach, although the latter two were eliminated early on in the process. The former two, Moorhead City and Southport, were capable of hosting the ship, but deemed too close to the coast and vulnerable to hurricanes. To Craig's delight, the committee eventually settled on Wilmington, which was deemed just far enough inward to provide the ship a little protection from storms. To raise the money, the commission recruited ambassadors from each of the state's 100 counties and even courted big names to endorse the campaign, including World War II admirables and even President John F. Kennedy. In North Carolina, the commission tasked every citizen with doing their part specifically appealing to school children. To inspire their support, Morton told every child who donated at least a dime that they would get a free ticket to the battleship once it opened. It was a smart marketing ploy. Getting children on board brought their parents into the fold and eventually drew the entire family to the battleship as paying customers. Today, the Battleship North Carolina claims more than 700,000 students statewide contributed at least 10 cents to the campaign. Over Memorial Day 1961, local television stations and even those in Raleigh also ran televised appeals for support. In the end, the aggressive campaign raised more than $330,000, well over the goal, and more than enough to save the USS North Carolina from the chopping block. For their part, the city of Wilmington and New Hanover County pooled together enough money to buy a 36-acre tract of land directly across from downtown Wilmington. With all the pieces in place, the showboat's final journey was quickly set in motion. The Navy officially struck the ship from its register on June 1, 1961, and then signed a contract with the state of North Carolina on August 28 that turned the ship over to the state on permanent loan, though it did retain the right to ask for the North Carolina back in the event of a national emergency. There was just one more hurdle to seeing Craig and Morton's vision through. How were they going to get the ship into its new home? At its widest, the Cape Fear River was 500 feet in 1961, 
which would prove to be a tight fit for the 728-foot battleship. The river was also only 32 feet deep at the time, while the ship drew 30 feet. But at this point, there was no turning back. On September 26th, the ship left the fleet yard in New Jersey, towed by ocean-capable tugboats. It had been stripped of all of its power and relieved of all of its fuel to make the trip as easy as possible. She rounded Frying Pan Tower off the coast on September 30th, with a plan to arrive in downtown Wilmington the following day. But a storm rolled in and delayed her arrival, pushing her big debut to Monday, October 2nd. Although it was a work and school day, Wilmington all but came to a standstill as thousands lined the riverfront up and down the coast to see her arrival. She finally came into sight by midday, assisted by nearly a dozen tugboats. But it wasn't a smooth entrance by any means. As she began to swing around for her final turn into the berth, she collided with the Ark, a floating restaurant at the foot of Princess Street, where the U.S. Coast Guard currently moors the Cutter Diligence. Local lore says that the Ark's owner didn't move the vessel because he wanted to be in the warship's path so he could collect any damages. And damaged it was. The collision resulted in around $15,000 in destruction to the restaurant, for which the owner sued the state's battleship commission for $25,000. He was paid $3,000 out of court. By nightfall on October 2nd, the ship was nestled in its new home, and she was settled into her final position the next morning. Just like she had been on countless occasions since she first slid into the water 21 years earlier, the North Carolina's final mission had been an undeniable spectacle. One missed just two days before the North Carolina began her journey to Wilmington. James Craig was on assignment at an air show at the Wilmington Airport, where he caught a ride with the Air Force and its Golden Knights as they prepared for a parachute drop. On takeoff, the plane carrying the group stalled and crashed into the ground, killing three people instantly. Craig was alive, but severely burned, and immediately airlifted to a burn unit in San Antonio, Texas where he died on October 14th. The next day, the battleship North Carolina, now stationed in her final harbor, lowered the flags on board to half-mast in his honor. Although Craig never got to see the ship's arrival, his effort to save what he saw as a priceless piece of our nation's history wasn't in vain. By October, it was no longer a single man's crusade, but a state's personal mission to save its wartime heritage. Restored to her former glory and sporting the battle stars she earned on the world stage, the battleship North Carolina is today visited by nearly 200,000 visitors each year. A testament to its enduring ability to inspire awe in all those who see her. 
down but never out. She remains a memorial to the sacrifice of a country and of a time when the name North Carolina struck fear in her enemies and hope in her allies. Joining me now to talk further about the battleship North Carolina is Kim Sincox, the museum services director with the battleship. Thank you so much for being here. Hunter, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Now, I was telling you right before we started recording that uh, I have a new appreciation for the battleship because I did a lot of research doing this particular episode. So I'm excited to kind of dig a little deeper and talk about some of the things that I even have questions about because I learned so much doing this episode. Um, And the first one I have is... You know, this ship was loaded with so much firepower, so much just power in general, but it had the nickname The Showboat. Why was that? Well, if anybody's fond of musicals, there's a musical called Showboat. That musical is so old, it was actually in revival when the ship was undergoing her shakedown cruise in New York City. And she was in and out of New York City, the harbor, so much that Walter Winchell, the famous newspaperman, nicknamed her the showboat after the popular Broadway musical. And he thought it being a little bit derogatory in a way that the Navy was using her just kind of to show off. But what happened was the ship later goes down to Norfolk to meet up with her sister ship, the Washington. And as we are pulling in, the band aboard the Washington strikes up the tune. Here comes the showboat. And the name just stuck. Well, and it, it did because people refer to it as that now. I just think it's a kind of a cool nickname, and I like that it has a musical kind of root to it. Now, this this ship was a big deal. It, you know, I read that she could produce enough energy to power seven thousand homes, and if you fired her guns from where she is right now, across from downtown Wilmington, they would reach Fort Fisher. That's 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 a lot of power. She's amazing. She really is a technological wonder. I I love to tell people that all the guns use computers. They were mechanical analog computers, but they were computers. She had to make her own propulsion. She made her own electricity. She made her own fresh water. She's just an amazing piece of equipment. There's, it's just fascinating. And she, uh, you told me this beforehand, but uh, she only got about 32 feet per gallon, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we use mother steam is what I call it because the armored cruiser North Carolina used coal to produce steam. Um, the battleship North Carolina used uh, bunker sea fuel to produce steam, and the current uh, submarine uses nuclear power, but it's still about steam. So she wasn't really running on the fuel per se. They were using fuel to boil water to create steam, and that's what yeah. powered the ship. So, yeah, 32. And that was energy efficient. The British couldn't keep up with us. So, <laughs> Imagine getting 32 feet a gallon in your car right now. That just makes me shudder a little bit, uh, <laughs> thinking about the, the cost of just moving around. Why wasn't she in service longer than six years? The Navy was undergoing a transition at that point. So when they're designing the ship, they're thinking she's going to the old timers. Some of them thought she would be slugging out with another ship, and that was the way she was designed. But there were people like Billy Mitchell who realized that it was going to be about air power. So really, by the time you get to World War II, it's really about aircraft carriers and submarines. And the role of the battleship becomes to support the aircraft carrier. We protect her with our guns, and we also can take care of the destroyers because we truly are a floating city. Now, tell me a little bit about that, because what would it have been like for a 
you know, uh, someone, an enlisted man to be on this ship. I mean, you were a city, so you had everything you needed, but it also had to kind of service the ships it was protecting. Yes, it really was a city at sea. And for somebody who maybe came from the country and also the, the United States had been in a depression, I mean, the whole world was in a worldwide depression. And so you have these young men coming from the country. Maybe they didn't, um, you know, didn't know where they were going to get a job. Certainly they weren't going to college. Um, they wouldn't have had the same kind of medical care we're used to. And suddenly they're on this, this ship that has a, a bakery. They can have cream puffs. They have a big band. They can watch movies every night. There's a library. There's, there's laundry service and barbers and so many things that maybe they didn't have out in the country. As I tell people, if you lived in the country, you didn't even have running water or electricity. So the ship was very sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, it was an upgrade in life for, for some of these absolutely, men who were absolutely. sacrificing themselves. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's fun when you go and tour the battleship to look at all of these different departments, these different rooms where, you know, you just kind of have to imagine people spending their day because this a lot of this ship's history was kind of waiting to do something. You know, you would read those stories of men, you know, just kind of waiting to, to get orders or there would be a lot of false alarms or something. So you would have to live on the ship. You would have to kind of fill your day with whatever was around you. Oh, absolutely. They had illegal gambling games. Um, they made their own hooch, as I call it. <laughs> uh, alcohol was illegal. So they, they made their own, you know, they had their own um, stills aboard ship. They would have... Um, like I said, various games. They had people who would do you know, skits and uh, played instruments and uh, you know danced and all kinds of stuff to have to have fun on the ship. Uh, sporting competitions. I know during the Iwo Jima, one of the things they have on this battle plan for that day is they're having a state photo contest and they haven't heard from uh, Delaware and Rhode Island yet. So there's still time, folks. And that's on the battle plan, even with Iwo Jima. They're still concerned about that state photo contest. Wow. I just, I, I, again, I think that's fascinating to think of, you know, how you fill your day personally on land, just thinking all the things you could do, but they were very much limited, even though they did have a lot of options. Well, they had to also, of course, keep up the ship. You always have to be, there's chipping paint and painting and training. They had to keep training. Um, if you were on the ship, you might want to uh, be a gunner's mate, but you don't start out as one. So you, you're rising up within the ranks. You have to study. You have to take tests and things and train to um, move up the rank, and you'll also get more pay that way. So, so they did have ways of, of filling their time. And, you know, the its arrival itself is legendary. I mean, it, it took so many kind of so much power and so many people to not only get it up the river, but even before that, to even get the money to do it. I mean, you have, have these stories of people who gave 10 cents when they were a kid or, you know, their their family helped. And so it, it's a really inspiring story to see the state kind of come together, you know, when so often we don't, uh, we kind of fall prey to our differences. Yeah, the whole fundraising campaign is legendary. And a lot of the credit goes to Hugh Morton. There were several ideas that he had, one of which was he had uh, something called the North Carolina Navy. And they made President Kennedy the first admiral. And if you raised 100, no, excuse me, if you gave 100 or raised 500, you're made an admiral in the North Carolina Navy with lifetime privileges of visiting the ship. And then there's the famous nickel and dimes campaign for school children across the state. And we still meet those people 
all the time. I gave my nickels and dimes to save that. They feel like it's their ship because they gave them a sense of ownership. And that is really quite legendary, that, that whole campaign. Well, and that was the whole purpose of it. Even it was save our ship. I mean, so it was yes. kind of taking ownership. Yes. Of, even then, of we didn't have any state. There was no state money involved in saving the ship. That was all supported by the citizens of the state. So that's tremendous. And what most people don't realize is that we're still set up that way. Yeah. That we are still self-supporting. We're considered a state enterprise. So even though we are the state's World War II memorial and we are state employees, we do not receive state tax money or federal tax dollars either. Yeah, so when you go visit the battleship and you have a great time, donate. That's how uh, they keep oh, it yes, together. Please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what kind of stories or legends do people come to you with saying, is this true? Is that true? I mean, is there anything about its service or anything that you guys kind of have to debunk or explain for people? I think the most popular question is, is she haunted? And I will say there are lots of unexplained experiences on this ship. And many people have had including myself, have unexplained experiences on the ship. And of course, some people are just going to be skeptical. But my thought is, we just don't understand everything. That's my idea of the, of the universe. You mm-hmm. know, once upon a time, we didn't know about black holes either. So there's just things we don't fully understand. But there was a lot of history made there. There's a lot of life on that ship. A lot of life on that ship. You know, so I, I think that's the most popular question. And we don't really push that. But that is a rental. That's one of the ways we make money on the ship, a rental function. So you can have your birthday parties, corporate events, weddings, whatever. But paranormal groups come and they are rental groups and they do pay a fee and they seem to leave happy. So we're glad that, uh, as my colleague says, the ghosts now have a job. Well, that's good. Um, (laughs) What are some of these unexplained experiences? Is it more just like sounds and stuff like that that people do? Mm, Well, at least in my case, my story, I always tell people that I think will explain that one is... I had my lunch sitting on the far right corner of my desk. So I was eating my lunch. I get up and I go around to the other side of my desk behind some file cabinets. And I'm talking to my colleague and a volunteer. And I hear a weird noise. And I come back and my lunch that was on my far right corner is now probably a couple feet away upside down in the floor. The key being it was Asian stir fry. (laughs) So I think the ghosts have a sense of humor, but it's not the or ship's at least not prejudice moving. Still. <laughs> You're like, it's not as if the ship's not moving. There's no Godzilla rat there. I mean, it's just it was just like the craziest thing. To this day, I will not leave my lunch. I don't leave the desk with the lunch uncovered. Yeah, I'll just close true. up whatever I'm eating, you know, just to make sure Absolutely. it stays safe. Well, and it's it's one of those kind of lightning rod. Uh, locations and and histories because you know you have books that people wrote about that but it's 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 legacy is it's so much more rich than some of these ghost stories that have persisted oh yes well another interesting one is there's a woman here in town who i guess you would call them a sensitive and she was talking about she had been walking somewhere on the ship that she felt a lot of anger uh, fear frustration these different kinds of emotions and as she's describing it, I'm thinking, I think she means officer's country. So we go up there and she can't feel it. She can't feel it. And we get to this one area. She's like, yes, this is where it is. And we kept moving forward. And she's, no, I'm losing it. I'm losing that sensation. And we come back. She's right here. Well, the place where she's talking about was where the African-American crew were. And uh, the African-American crew on the ship, there was a small group of gentlemen and they were stewards mates and such. And they were basically there to cook the officers food and to wait on the officers. This was that time in our country. And she had no way she had no idea where she was talking about. 
she wasn't doing it for some sort of sensational reason. It was something she was picking up. And I thought, isn't that interesting? This sort of these vibrations of history. So Mm -hmm. it really made, and none of these folks died, uh, at least not in uh, one, one drown accidentally at one point. But I was so impressed that she could pick that up. Yeah. Well, it shows, again, the history is still living on the ship. I mean, even as more people come through, when I do this podcast, you know, so much of these stories that I do have ghost elements or over time, people have developed ghost elements to them, um, which I think are fascinating. But it also shows that there was enough history and life in these stories even before that. Oh, absolutely. uh, They could spawn something. Well, one of my volunteers, and I still remember seeing him moments later, he was so freaked out. He was cleaning. He was cleaning on the ship, and he turned around, and he literally saw a figure sitting up in bed wearing the typical outfit of the day, and he said the figure jumped off the bunk. He heard his feet hit the deck, and the volunteer got up and kind of ran and like slammed his head into something. Mm. I mean, he was just so freaked out. Um, and we hear all these kinds of stories by so many different people. So, Well, and I imagine you get questions not just about ghosts, but just people curious about the ship's history. I mean, curious about what it did and how it played a role in this country's history, and particularly, you know, really the greatest event of the 20th century, World War II. What we get a lot of are, are families, the families that come back and say, my uncle served on the ship or my grandfather. Can you tell me about that? So we love connecting families with their relatives who served on the ship. Absolutely. That's very fulfilling. Absolutely. All right. So uh, I think my final question is, uh, and it's one that I've gotten before, uh, is the battleship North Carolina ever going to move again? Only when we get a lot of rain and stuff from a storm. <laughs> we do do that. In fact, in Florence, we were listing. Yeah. Um, we listed enough so that when we finally got the toilet service back, which we were out until November 17th, we still couldn't use the bathrooms on the ship because we were listing too far to starboard and things what wouldn't What does listing mean? Flow. So listing means leaning. Okay. You're just leaning. So you're not sitting on an even keel, so to speak. You're, you're leaning towards one way or the other. And that would be the only reason, because, of course, now we've got that huge, enormous steel coffer dam totally surrounding the ship. Absolutely. And actually, her hull, probably, you know, that would have made us nervous, really. Well, because you guys are doing repairs, or, or yes. will be doing repairs to her hull, because over time, I mean, she's corroding. She's She needs to be taken care of. Yes, it's mostly the interaction of the water and the waves and stuff through, and the process. I can't remember. It's, a, it's an electrical kind of process where it... it pulls you know pulls the steel and stuff away and you've got rusting going on so we do have rust issues that will be repairing the hull absolutely i asked this question because there was a clause in the agreement to sign the ship over to the state from the navy that the navy could call her back if they ever needed her that seems like that would be a little counterintuitive now just because she's been out of service so long but they did end up taking a few things correct Yes. And of course, when we were brought here in 61, she hadn't been out of service as long. True. And it might have been more feasible. But now there are no battleships in the United States Navy anymore. But during the Reagan years, when they're reactivating the Iowa class, which by the end of the war, they're the most modern. There were the first two ships were the the battleship North Carolina and her sister Washington. There were four South Dakota class ships and then the four Iowas, which were the most modern of all the ships. So during the Reagan years, he decides to reactivate those ships and they need uh, need pieces, parts off of us. They took 120 tons of pieces, parts off the battleship North Carolina. Wow, that's, uh, you know, just kind of taking what you need, picking it up. It's mind-boggling. They just simply didn't make all those things anymore, and we had stuff. 
available. And uh, the funniest thing is in 1990 in the Gulf War, for those 16-inch guns, they were using the same World War II computers to fire those guns. That's how good those computers were. Wow. It's kind of mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. Well, Kim, thank you so much for talking to me. And the Battleship North Carolina is open 365 days a year every major holiday so you can go out there on christmas day if you want but you can't go out there until noon on christmas day and uh and you guys are doing programs all year and especially some this summer what are some of the things that people could look out for okay we always like to encourage the adult program so you need to go on the website and find out about hidden battleship power plant firepower all that good stuff Right now, we've got things like Battleship 101 is this Saturday. We'll have over 50 volunteers stationed throughout the ship. We do Battleship 101 all year round, so check your calendar for that. We've got Flag Day, which is on June 14th, and you can bring your flag and fly it at the ship yourself. Hoist it up. That's from 10 to 2 on Flag Day. Celebrate the Legacy is a two-day event with collectors, like World War I collectors and stuff, and they'll have their things on display at the ship. So we've got those kind of events. And for those of us in Wilmington, if you join the Friends of the Battleship, you can watch the July 4th fireworks from the deck of the ship. And that is an amazing experience. So just find out about, oh, it's a fantastic view. It's very laid back. And that is July 4th. That's joining the Friends of the Battleship. Now, I want to ask one more question that I'll, we'll leave it on. Uh, we st- I started out this episode by telling people kind of where the name, the USS North Carolina, came from. Um, but her name lives on in another vessel today, right? It certainly does. I think of the baby as being the fast attack nuclear submarine SSN-777. And she's home ported out of Pearl Harbor. And her captain and some of the crew were here recently. That's during awesome. Azalea Festival. So the USS North Carolina name and legacy lives on, and you can go visit probably its, its centerpiece, the Battleship North Carolina here in Wilmington. Thank you so much for being here, Kim. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of the Battleship North Carolina. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next week to share a new story from the local history books. And until then, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed. Or you can email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week... I'm going to be sharing some amazing photos of the USS North Carolina as it fought in World War II and as it arrived in Wilmington in 1961. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. As always, you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear and Earth by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. 
And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you stream the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you.